This is a Rooster Teeth production. January 10th, 2000. Crosshair Flight 498, a Saab 340B with 10 people on board, is taking off from Zurich, Switzerland, bound for Dresden, Germany. After taking off, the crew is given a new heading by air traffic control that allows them to shave some time off their flight, so they accept it. The captain is flying the plane and giving commands to the first officer who is busy carrying out his tasks. When the first officer finishes his tasks and finally looks up, he realizes the plane is quickly becoming destabilized. The two pilots struggle to figure out which way to turn the plane before it enters a spiraling dive and crashes into the ground, three miles northwest of the airport. What happened to cause this flight to lose control so shortly after takeoff? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. I'm Gus. I'm Chris. <laughs> just like just like always. Why do we always? Int- I guess we always have to do, introduce ourselves in case someone's listening for the first time. Yeah. If it is your first time, welcome. <laughs> welcome. You you have. Uh, your new favorite podcast ahead of you. <laughs> I realized something, Chris. I realized uh, just the other day that uh, our link tree wasn't in some of our social media accounts. So I went, I went through and added it. So if you give us a follow uh, at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram, you'll see the famous link tree there. Uh, that has links, links to, to everything. Everything. Uh, the store.rushteeth.com where we got some merchandise. I've seen some people send us tweets with uh, our, our new mug, which is, uh, which is great to see. Also, our animated show, Aviation Explanation, is on that link tree as well. And everything Black Box Down related, all in one place. Mm-hmm. So good work on that. I know that was that was your baby, Chris. Good job. I planted a seed and it turned into a tree. <laughs> now you're turning into your D&D character. That's a, diff- <laughs> that's a different podcast that we do, Chris. <laughs> totally different. We're, we're, doing, uh, we're doing Black Box Down today. So uh, today we're talking about Crossair Flight 498. Like I said, it was a commuter flight from Zurich, Switzerland to Dresden, Germany, back on January 10th, 2000, almost exactly 22 years ago from when we're recording this. That's, it's, it's crazy because you said 2000. I was like, oh, that's not that long ago, but it is. It's almost a quarter century, <laughs> a, lo- a long time ago. How many people did you say was on board? 10 people were on board. So okay. this was a Saab 340B, which depending on the configuration holds typically between 33 to 36 passengers. So it's like a, a twin turboprop, like a twin propeller plane. So it's not like a big jet, mm-hmm. but it's still like would be considered a regional jet. I don't know if I, I mean, I'd heard the name Saab 340, but. Well, yeah, Saab, you know, they make cars also. So that might be how oh. you're familiar with them. No major airline in the United States flies this plane. So there's a good chance you've probably never seen one, never seen this specific plane, but you've seen planes mm-hmm. similar to it. You know, twin propeller, regional plane is what would most likely appears like. Okay. Yeah. I just looked up an image. It looks like. A normal plane. Yeah, that, that, yeah, if you, yeah, if you imagine a twin propeller regional plane, you're probably pretty close to what the Saab 340B uh, looks like. So this flight was crewed by Captain Pavel Gruzin, who was 41 years old with 8,100 hours of flying time. And First Officer Rostislav Kolasar, who was 35 with 1,900 hours of flight time. And this particular plane uh, in this incident was about nine years old. It had about 20,589 flight hours and 21,676 cycles. There was one flight attendant and seven passengers on board. So it was not not a very full flight by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. So on the day before the accident, this crew flew four flights and had 13 and a half hours uh, rest before arriving at the Zurich airport at 1235 UTC. So just afternoon, universal time. The crew then made two flights to Nuremberg, Germany, and back in a different Saab 340B, and they switched to the accident aircraft when they got back to Zurich. This particular plane arrived at Zurich at 4 p.m. UTC, 
and the crew boarded the plane and received their clearance instruction 39 minutes later. So they'd been back and forth a few times already, then got onto this plane, which is a different plane that had flown earlier in the day. Totally normal. Happens mm-hmm. all the time. You know, as part of their departure clearance, the crew were instructed to follow the Zurich East One Yankee departure, which is just a particular route, a particular instrument departure that they're going to take. Should be in their charts. You know, they know exactly where, you know, it tells them what direction, what altitude, how to take off. Okay. They started their engines at 4.45 universal time and started the taxi checklist. And they taxied to the runway and they were cleared for takeoff at 4.54. The weather for the airport at the time showed winds from 290 degrees at two knots, which is pretty slow, you know, uh-huh. not really anything to, to take note of, but it is very slight. Six kilometers of visibility with a drizzle, a cloud base at 500 feet, and the temperature was two degrees Celsius. And it was already, at this point, it was already dark. So, you know, it's winter, a little later in the afternoon. So the sun's already set. It's already overcast to begin with. You know, if the cloud base is at 500 feet, those are really low clouds and it's drizzling. It's pretty dreary conditions. All right, dreary. Shortly after takeoff, the nav mode on the autopilot was armed and both pilots confirmed the long-range navigation system was following the track. Uh, and then the plane entered into IMC conditions, which is like, you can't see anything. It's all instrument, instrument conditions. Okay. Because like we said, dreary. Yeah. Cloud based at 500 feet. As soon as they take off, they're going to be in clouds pretty quickly. Okay. So they're like, just, just rely on instruments. Mm-hmm. Follow the computers. Follow the computer. Yeah. And IMC conditions. I think it's uh, instrument meteorological conditions. So, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to have to use your instruments. But just to be clear, that doesn't mean you're necessarily like in autopilot or anything. It means even if you're manually flying the plane, you can't see anything. So you have to be looking at your instruments. Yeah. To, you know, give you any idea of what's happening. Just want to make sure. I'm clear about that. Okay. So the initial flight path followed the center line of the runway at 276 degrees. But after the crew switched to the departure frequency, the radar showed a deviation in the flight path by five degrees to the south. However, the deviation was reduced and the crew hit the DME 2.1 KLO waypoint by initiating a right turn. The DME is the distance measuring equipment. They just, all that means is they hit the appropriate waypoint by initiating a right turn. Okay. So they like took off and they were a little off course. Yeah. Five degrees to the south. It's not a ton, but it is a little bit. You know, it's uh-huh. uh, it's not right. Yeah. But, you know, they do a right turn and they they hit their, their waypoint. And yeah, again, just to be clear, like I said, they deviated five degrees to the south, which means that they deviated to the left. Because if they take off at 276, that's to the west. And then if they do five degrees to the south, that means they turned left a little bit. And mm-hmm. then they correct it by making that right turn. So about a minute after takeoff, the crew were cleared to 11,000 feet and were instructed to turn left at the Zurich East VOR. And again, that's a beacon, kind of like a waypoint. So they're told, once you hit that, make a left. First officer confirmed this instruction. The turn to the Zurich East VOR was not part of the departure procedure that they were following. So remember, I said they were cleared Mm -hmm. one way. They were cleared with specific departure. This left turn to the Zurich East VOR was not what they had briefed on, was not what they were anticipating. Uh-huh. The departure procedure the crew were following specified a left turn to 255 degrees from the KLO waypoint. So the crew started a 16-degree bank to the left from a heading of 270. And the first officer informed the captain that the long-range navigation system was programmed from their present position to the Zurich East VOR. So the guy on control said, hey, turn here instead of what I told you earlier? Right. The guy at air traffic control yeah, yeah gave them a new um, way to turn or a new direction so it was changing the way they were departing the airport so that instead of like kind of taking the long way around, this was a little more direct, which would save yeah. them time on their flight. 
And they told them this, like, hey, this will save you some time. Take this. I don't know if they necessarily told them that, mm-hmm. but, you know, they were cleared. They should understand. The crew should understand, you know, looking at it or once they receive the instructions, like, oh, you know, this is more direct. This is faster. Okay. So, like I said, they had started this 16-degree bank to the left, but they only did that for, like, two seconds. And then the aircraft began to roll to the right at a rate of three degrees per second. While all this was going on, the captain was giving out routine orders to the first officer to carry out, you know, like turning on the yaw damper, turning on bleed air. So the captain in the left-hand seat is flying and he's telling the first officer what to do. And the first officer is going through checklists, you know, setting everything up. So he's, you know, looking down, looking around the cockpit, you know, executing everything the captain's telling him to do. The bank angle then reached 8.4 degrees to the right and the nose began to drop from 14.2 degrees to 10.8 degrees nose up. So remember, they're supposed to be turning left, but they're mm-hmm. banking now 8.4 degrees to the right, and their nose is starting to drop a little bit. They're st- it's still angled up, but it's not as angled up as it had been. At 4.56, the right bank angle reached 31 degrees, and the captain gave the order to set climb power. So 31 degrees, now it's like they're entering a pretty steep bank, and uh, you know, climb power, like they're just you know increasing their power. Uh-huh. Uh, the first officer confirmed this order by saying, coming and began to set the climb power. And the report notes that this procedure takes, quote, quite some time. It normally takes that quite some time, or it was taking them quite some time? Normally, it will take some time. Okay. So over the next several seconds, the captain stabilized the bank angle between 39 and 42 degrees to the right, and the pitch reduced and stabilized at one degree nose up. So they're pretty much right at, they're at a, a bank angle to the right of about 40 degrees and the nose has settled to about one degree nose up, which is still up, but it's not very much. Uh-huh. But they're supposed to be turning left, but they're turning right? Correct. They are still turning right at this point. And are they supposed to be climbing at all? They should be climbing more than this. Yeah, they're cleared yeah. up to 11,000 feet. And at this point, they're only at about 4,700 feet. Oh, there's, yeah, they're still real low. Yeah, and actually, specifically, they were at, they were at 4,720 feet. And they're leveling off at this point. Because like I said, they're only one degree nose mm-hmm. up. Like they're pretty much leveled off. And the cloud tops in this area were at about 5,000 feet. So they're banking the wrong direction and they're in the clouds. They can't see anything. I don't want to get, get too far ahead, but are they just reading everything wrong? The instruments or the instruments wrong or what? Like, cause it sounds like they're just. Right. Like, yeah. How can you be turning in the, ex- the opposite direction? There's only two. Well, there's only left and right. <laughs> Uh, granted, when you're flying a plane, there's also up and down. But when it comes to, you know, turn left or turn right, you have two options. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you pick the wrong one? It's weird. And even, I, I will say, you know, they are also in clouds, though. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not looking at your instruments and you're just relying on your equilibrium and your inner ear and your body, maybe your body's telling you the wrong thing. It's difficult to say because, again, it, it's dark and they're in a cloud. So they can't see anything outside. There's no frame of reference. Left, they're doing it with their hands, right? <laughs> you are correct. They are doing it with their hands. I'm, I'm just trying to, I don't know, come up with a with a reason. Yeah, he's 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 performing the bank. He's going in in, yeah. in the wrong direction. Are they calling it out? Like turning left, and then he turns right. Like okay, that's an that's an excellent question you just asked right there, Chris. And I'm going to answer that in just a second. Okay, okay. I, got, I have to I have to read a couple more things. I have to read like two more sentences, and then I'm going to answer okay. that specific question. <laughs> so. Right about this time, this is happening at 4.56 and 10 seconds, a nine-second period started, which is characterized by destabilization of the attitude. At 4.56 and 12 seconds, the first officer told the captain they should be turning left to Zurich East. 
Three seconds later, the captain muttered to himself, and the bank angle reached 65.8 degrees to the right, with the pitch dropping as a result of this large bank. What? At 4.56 and 18 seconds, the departure controller contacted the flight and asked them to confirm that they were turning left. The phrase he used was, confirm left turn. The first officer immediately responded, telling them to stand by, and the controller then instructed the crew to continue right turn to Zurich. So at this point, the, the controller's like, well, they're not turning left, so keep turning right to Zurich East. So the controller's just like, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing? Initially, the controller asks it like a question, like, you know, Crosshair 498, confirm left turn. And then the first officer says, stand by. So the air traffic controller comes back on and says, continue right turn to Zurich East. Because he sees, you know, they're turning right. He's like letting them know, all right, if you want to turn right, you can keep turning right. You know, we'll, we'll clear that as your direction. Uh-huh. The key here, and I'm, I'm spoiling a little bit of what we're going to get into later. The key here was confirm left turn. You understand that as a native English speaker, that that can be like a question. Uh-huh. If you're not a native English speaker, you might be hearing, oh, he's confirming we're turning left. Oh. You see, like, <laughs> even when there's like oh. very quick conversation, things can be misunderstood if you're not explicitly clear. It wasn't confirm you are going to turn left or confirm you are... Are you going to are, turn left? Are you yeah. going to turn left? Right. It's like there are other ways you can ask. When you say confirm left turn... Someone might misinterpret it as, oh, yeah, he just confirmed we're turning left, even though uh. your hands are banking to the right. So the aircraft enters, a, you know, a spiral dive with a bank angle that reaches 137 degrees to the right. So that's more than, you know, 90 degrees would be uh-huh. wings, you know, they're perpendicular turning to the earth. Yeah, they're, they're starting to invert at this point. They enter a spiral dive. The engines were still set to climb power and the speed reached 250 knots and the overspeed warning sounded. The first officer then started yelling to turn left. The flight then crashed in an open field about three miles northwest of the airport. Uh, and the last recorded data showed a bank angle of 76 degrees, a pitch of 63 degrees nose down, and a speed wow. of 285 knots. And the aircraft was destroyed and everyone on board was killed. I don't understand what happened. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like, I think you can probably picture what was happening, but I think you don't understand why it happened. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I understand what physically happened, but not... Like. Yeah, why? It's like, turn left, and you're turning right. And uh, I think it was, in, you know, in, in, I keep talking about how the first officer, you know, was going through the checklist, doing different things that he was being instructed to, because as a result of this, he's looking down, you know? He's not looking out. He's not looking at the instruments. He's not looking uh-huh. at the attitude indicator. And then, you know, and then when he's done doing everything, he looks up, and he's like, wait, what are we doing? Why are we turning right? You know, that's why he's like, turn left, turn left. You know, what do you... He starts yelling to the captain, you know, you know... Turn, turn left, and the captain just keeps turning the plane to the right. What is up with the captain? You're right. I mean, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's the crux of this, and that's, you know, what the investigation sets out to find out. Like, how does this happen? Was there a mechanical problem? Was the captain confused about left and right? You know, what, how do you enter this situation? So the investigation was carried out by the Swiss Aircraft Accident Investigation Bureau because, you know, of course, they're taking off from uh, Zurich, Switzerland. So prior to takeoff, the standard instrument departure had been entered into the flight management system and was working correctly. There's, you know, a bunch of waypoints and acronyms I could read here. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to read all that. Uh-huh. You know, they put, they, they put the different waypoints in and they entered that in the flight management system and it was working. And remember, like I said, they did get their route changed a little bit after they took off. The report says the captain was flying manually, but it also seems like the flight director has a little control over the bank angle when following the navigation log. 
So when they reached the KLO waypoint, which I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. a left turn was initiated to start flying at the 255 radial. And like I said, they initially did start a left bank, but then started going to the right or started banking to the right. And it was at the same time that the new instructions were given to fly to the Zurich East VOR. The departure controller instructed them to make a left turn to this VOR. First officer confirmed this, and he started to enter it into the flight management system on his own, you know, because mm-hmm. he's doing, you know, he's dealing with all the instruments and everything. Uh, when he told the captain they were now going direct to the VOR, he did not inform him that it was a left turn. So, you know, he basically tells the captain, hey, now we're going direct to this other place. But he doesn't say make a left turn there. Oh. The captain was following what was on the flight director. And when the direct to entry is made in this situation without defining a turn direction, the flight director commands a right turn by default because that is the shorter distance. So the computer gets the new waypoint uh-huh. and determines like, oh, it'll be faster if we make a right turn. But, you know, they were instructed to turn left, uh-huh. but it just wasn't put into the flight management system that way. So the flight management system on like, all right, well, let's make the right turn to go in that direction. Oh, so the computer was saying turn right. Correct. Even though air traffic control had told them to turn left. And air traffic control, even though it's not the most direct way to get there, you know, air traffic control may tell them to turn left to create a little more space for another plane or to, to mm-hmm. give themselves a little more time for whatever reason. Sometimes like when, you know, when they're, when a pilot is told to make a turn, they'll, they're normally told left turn to this or right turn to this because air traffic control may be dealing with something else and they may need you to take a little bit of, you know, a more roundabout way to get there. Yeah. That's what air traffic control does is that's they, the- <laughs> they control the traffic. <laughs> right. They space it all out. So, for whatever reason, they were told to make a left turn to get there, but the flight computer displayed a right turn. So does that mean that the uh, uh, first officer put it in correctly? Or? So he put it in and then gave it a direct to command. So the plane displayed the direct to instead of telling it, you know, hey, we're doing a left turn here. Direct to is just, that's like the default way yeah. you would put it. It's just like direct and then it shows you the way to get there. I mean, the captain... Should also have been listening. You know, in my opinion, the captain should also have been listening to Uh air traffic control and have heard them say left turn to that. And also the first officer did not tell him that it was a left turn. He just put it into the Mm. flight management system. So there could have been some confusion there because of that. Sticking to your New Year's resolutions can be hard, but if you're focusing on saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook, or prioritizing your wellness, achieving your goals is easy as pie with HelloFresh. HelloFresh has endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable by delivering pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm-fresh produce that arrives within a week. They've got all sorts of options to fit your lifestyle, from quick and easy meals to 20-minute recipes to veggie or calorie-smart options. The options don't stop there. Each week, they have 50 menu items and market items to choose from, including family-friendly and gourmet options. That's everything from white cheddar Wonder Burgers to hibachi sweet soy bavette, steak, and shrimp. Just the other day, I made uh, some one-pot black bean soup. It was awesome. It was so good and so easy. It was just four steps. (laughs) I I appreciate how quick and easy it was and how delicious uh, of a meal I had when I was done putting it all together. Uh, So you can go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. A new team, a new mission, all in the name of peace. Peacemaker explores the origins of Peacemaker himself, you know, John Cena's character in James Gunn's 2021 film, The Suicide Squad. Peacemaker believes in peace at any cost, no matter how many people he has to kill to get it. The series also stars Danielle Brooks as Adebayo, uh, Freddie Stroma as Vigilante, Jennifer Holland as Harcourt, Chuck Woedi Ewoji as Moon, Steve Agee as Economos, and Robert Patrick as Augie Smith. 
Stream new episodes of Peacemaker on HBO Max starting January 13th. Listen to Podly, the Peacemaker podcast on HBO Max, the HBO Max and DC YouTube channels, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to walk some sweet Peacemaker merch, head over to shop.dccomics.com for the latest drops. In case you want to dive deeper into these characters in the world of Peacemaker, DC Universe Infinite's Peacemaker comics are free to read with registration. So make sure to catch Peacemaker on HBO Max at hbomax.com slash peacemaker and tune into the official podcast, Podly. So the plane had started to bank to the left before the first officer changed the flight path. Then when it started to bank to the right, the control change was smooth and slow, and the Bureau believes the captain perceived this to be a stabilization in the left turn and not a turn to the right. So they think that since the captain couldn't see anything, because again, it was nighttime and they're in clouds, uh-huh. even though the, the plane started banking to the right, the captain may have thought that the plane was just stabilizing in its left turn at that point. He thought it was stabilizing in its left turn, even though he turned right? Yeah, when you enter a bank past a certain bank angle, you have to give it opposite aileron control in order to stabilize that turn. It's counterintuitive, but, you know, after you bank past, I don't know about specifically about the Saab, about this plane, but there is a point which after you enter a steep turn, you need to turn uh, your yoke in the opposite direction to stabilize it. Otherwise, the plane will want to continue banking in that direction. That makes sense. I, I get that. But he thought he turned right, though, right? He, well, no, he thought he turned left. At this point, they think that maybe he thought the right aileron input was just stabilizing that left bank. He thought he turned left, even though he put he physically turned right. Correct. Because remember, I said initially it started turning to the left. Mm. And so oh. he, the, the, the bank started to the left. And then he thought that, you know, the turning to the right was stabilizing, stabilizing that bank it. to the okay. left. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it seems a little counterintuitive, but trust me, you do have to, you know, bank in the opposite direction once you reach a certain bank angle. So at this point, you know, the first officer, like I said, was preoccupied with carrying out these instructions that the captain had given him, and neither of them noticed that they were actually banking to the right. Uh The bank angle then reached 31 degrees to the right. When the bank angle exceeds 27 degrees, the flight director generates an opposite roll command to stabilize the bank angle. It's like we said, that's like what we said before, or what I said before, that you do need to a little bit of opposite bank when you get to a certain point. That's about the time it became stabilized. Remember, I said it became stabilized between 39 and 42 degrees. Mm-hmm. But because there was no elevator command to compensate for the high bank angle, the nose started to drop. So normally when you, you know, are banking steeply like that, you got to give it some back pressure on the commands as well to kick the elevator in. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, this happens. Your nose starts to drop a little bit. So they're banking about 40 degrees to the right, but they're not giving any elevator commands. So the nose is starting to dip down a bit. Mm-hmm. There was no communication in the cockpit that indicated either pilot knew they were flying incorrectly, and the captain's climb power command led the first officer to believe everything was fine. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, the first officer, like we keep saying, he's doing all these commands, doing, you know, taking care of all the instruments. The captain tells him climb power. Everything sounds normal to him. You know, he's still going through all of his, uh, all of his motions, everything he needs to do. The plane then became more destabilized and increased to a bank angle, which resulted in the nose dropping to 25 degrees down. And at this point, the first officer started to realize they were turning to the right and told the captain they should be turning to the left. But the captain became confused when looking at the attitude indicator. Can you guess why? Because he thought they were turning left? I don't understand. Why? <laughs> His training was with the former Soviet Union. Oh, wait. Didn't they have the um, their thing positioned so that it's from the perspective of the plane instead of from the perspective of the uh, ground? Exactly. Their attitude indicators don't work the same as they do in Western attitude indicators. 
we've talked about this before yeah. on one of the Aeroflot episodes, and uh, it's just a different way of thinking. And he, you know, he entered this stressful situation, and his mind just probably fell back into his original way of thinking, the way he was initially trained in the former Soviet Union. And when the bank angle reached 65 degrees, all data on the attitude indicator, except for the attitude reference, retracted from the view. Uh, it's called declutter mode, and it's possible neither pilot had seen the attitude indicator look like this before. Oh. So it, the attitude indicator changes into a mode that they've never seen before because it's supposed to like call their attention to it. Uh -huh. And he probably just reverted to his Soviet training where the attitude in the indicator is fixed on the plane instead of the horizon, like, like you said a little while ago. Yeah, it is weird because I feel like it should be on the plane instead of the horizon. But then whenever you see it, it all, it's just weird. Yeah, I guess it's whatever you learn. Yeah, and to me, the way the Western indicator works seems to make more sense, but it may be because what I saw, you know, earlier rather yeah. than the, the other way. Well, I whenever know. I saw you do it in like Flight Simulator and stuff, it made sense watching it, but mm -hmm. just without having, you know, just thinking off the top of my head, it seems like you would do it from the plane, but it doesn't, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter. Right, as long as you have a system that works for you and that is yeah. like standardized, then it makes sense. And just to be clear, how can I say this concisely? Um, <laughs> so you, you are correct. One has the plane in a fixed position and everything else moves around it. And the other one has the horizon in a fixed position and the plane moves around it. So it's all about like frame of reference, right? Yeah. It's like, where, <laughs> what frame of reference do you want to use to picture everything? Yeah. So when the departure controller called to confirm they were turning left, the first officer prioritized responding to the controller and told him to stand by. The report notes that the first officer was already in a stressful situation doing the various tasks and had now become even more stressed and was unprepared for the situation and started breathing heavily. He then started to breathe deeply after a few seconds, which indicates he was getting to grips about solving the problem. But at this point, it was already too late to recover the aircraft. Really? It was that... I guess, I mean, they weren't that high up, so... Yeah, they weren't that high. And it was like a situation that had slowly you know, developed and they had reached a point where now it was too late to do anything. That's crazy that him accidentally turning the wrong direction led to all this. Well, you know, we, we've talked about many, many incidents and the most dangerous times of flight are takeoff and landing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can enter a situation like this where you're taking off and especially if you can't see the outside, you can, and we've talked about this before in other incidents, you can, you know, stall the plane. You have, a, you know, yeah. even though you have full power you just enter a bad bank a bad angle a bad attitude and you end up stalling the plane you know we just recently talked about uh the plane with that was overloaded and had the center of gravity too far back right and they mm -hmm. couldn't you know push the plane down they had plenty of power but they, you just can't control the plane after a certain point so the sequence of events showed that the main burden of work during the flight was on the first officer and this is evidenced by the fact he was only able to monitor uh the attitude for about a total of 10 seconds wow the first officer was noted for the exaggerated precision of his piloting behavior, which often reduced his speed. He attempted to compensate for this by reacting promptly to instructions and commands in some cases. He was anticipating commands and would execute them with extremely short reaction time. His rapid reactions became particularly visible when it came to his radio communications. The prioritization of radio communications is apparent several times and may be described as typical of him. Prioritization of radio communications above all other activities by the first officer had consequences on two critical occasions. When they were given the instructions to turn left to the Zurich East VOR, the first officer responded to this so quickly, the captain wasn't really able to process the information and assumed the new task of programming the flight management system 
on his own initiative, which is a deviation from standard procedure, and he did it in a rush. The second time was when he prioritized responding to ADC when he realized the plane was banking right and not left. So he was just kind of on top of the communication, almost a little too fast. So the first officer was responding so fast that the captain didn't even hear it or like didn't process what was being said almost. Is that what you're Yeah, like he had basically no time to process it. And then, you know, it's like you hear something really quick. Like, let's say you and I were at a restaurant and the waiter Uh talks to us. And I just like respond really quickly and the waiter walks off. Maybe you didn't catch it, but you're like, oh, well. He took care of it. Yeah, he answered it. He took care of it. He must know what's going on, right? He, like, ordered, he ordered the breadsticks. <laughs> like, right, like, you, you, like you, you wouldn't worry about it. Like, oh, that person, you know, whoever I'm with answered so quickly, it probably didn't matter. It was probably inconsequential. Versus hearing a command, like confirming that it's happening and then responding. Right. Plus also, English wasn't necessarily the first language for either of these pilots. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you're hearing something in another language Maybe your brain didn't fully translate it, but someone else replied. You're like, oh, okay, I'm sure whatever it was, it was fine. Yeah. It's tough to think about. But yeah, I mean, this this was all done in English and this was not either of their first languages. So that could also have played a role in it. That's something I wouldn't have thought about. The fact that he was responding so quickly to the radio that it was actually to a detriment. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't have thought of that, you know? Yeah, there's typically when piloting an airplane, there's like, three things that you think about. Well, this is a broad simplification, right? Let's Uh say there's an emergency, right? There's three things you do. In order of priority, it's aviate, navigate, communicate. So it's basically like fly the plane, keep it in the air, figure out where you are and where you're going. And then third, communicate, talk to the tower. Mm -hmm. Your priority should always be to fly the plane and keep it in the air. And communication should fall to third. Communication is important, but you should not prioritize it over your other tasks. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So the captain was occupied exclusively with manually controlling the aircraft and issuing instructions to the first officer. From this, it can be assumed that the issue of commands was complemented to a certain extent by monitoring, especially when the first officer reported completion of an operation. The Bureau notes that the captain could have switched on the fully functional autopilot, especially due to the fact they were flying in difficult operating conditions. Remember, like I said, he was flying manually. (laughs) They have Uh an autopilot. All of this stuff's programmed in it. They could have done it. It was nighttime. There were low clouds. It was cold, so there's a risk of icing. But he was manually flying the plane, which, you know, occupies all of his time. It's it's more difficult. He has to be on top of that. And why was he doing that then? So, like I said, he was from the former Soviet Union, and it's just a different way of thinking. In, you know, in Western aviation, pilots tend to rely on that autopilot quite a bit. Mm-hmm. In the former Soviet Union, pilots tend to do a lot of hand flying and don't use the autopilot as much. So he probably just reverted back to the way he was, you know, the way he grew up learning in the Soviet Union Yeah, was just like, just going to manually fly the plane himself. And do you think that this was partly because they couldn't see anything? Does that make sense? Like, Well, if anything, I would think that would make him want to use the autopilot even more <laughs> if it were me. Yeah, that's true. And just like monitor it and make sure it's doing the right thing. It's like if it's there and you can program all every, you know, the flight into it, the takeoff procedure, why not let it handle it? Well, until you get up above the clouds and then you can see, then maybe you can take over. But you said whenever he the, the first officer input the command, it had auto told him to turn right at the start. So would that, would that meant the autopilot would have turned right? Correct. The autopilot would have turned right. Okay. Which, you know, was not correct, but in the grand scheme of things, probably would have been okay because you heard air traffic control even told them after they kept turning right, like, all right, fine, continue with your right turn. <laughs> Fine, just do it, whatever. Yeah, you know, if you're doing that, just keep with it. So, I mean, 
technically they should have turned left, but yeah. even the right turn would have been okay. And at the time, you know, like we said, back in 2000, there were no mandatory regulations regarding the use of autopilot. And the use of autopilot was considered a piloting weakness in the captain's previous environment in the Soviet Union. Like they would consider it like you didn't know how to fly a plane if you're using the autopilot. Mm, yeah. He was also unable to express his uncertainty about the flight path and attitude. And again, in the former Soviet Union, there was a great difference in authority between the commander and other crew members, which probably made it difficult for him to admit uncertainty or mistakes. In addition to all of this, the captain was also trained in multi-crew aircraft and neither pilot had really undergone extensive CRM training, like crew resource management, which we've talked about oh, before, yeah. which is like yeah. super, super helpful. Uh, really, really a game changer when it came to aviation and making things safer. Yeah. So you see already there's kind of like, like, like in many of these incidents, there's a bunch of different things that are converging here to cause this incident. Not like not any one thing necessarily mm -hmm. is like mm -hmm. a smoking gun, but it's like all these little things kind of add up, you know, not speaking English natively, you know, starting your career using a different style ADI or even, you know, flying in the former Soviet Union where they didn't rely on autopilot as much. And then the, the weather and then the time of day right. and yeah. All these things. Then on top of this, on top of everything else, you know, when the Bureau is doing this investigation, you know, they recover the crash and, you know, anything they can, they recover the captain's crew bag. And in the bag, they find an open pack of Russian medication called phenazepam. And uh, they find this medication in his system after the toxicology report is done. Oh. And phenazepam is a benzodiazepine drug oh. that was developed in the Soviet Union, and it's a depressant. Yeah. That's like a, what is, uh, um, Valium or... Ativant. Yeah, so uh, Valium, uh, Xanax, Clonopin. Mm. Uh, these are all different types of this same drug. How much did he have in his system? So the fact that he had any in his system is kind of a problem. Yeah. Because it, like we said, it's depressant. It can slow reaction times. Mm -hmm. You know, and like we just listed off some other types of medicines that are like this. It's used in the treatment of various mental disorders like anxiety and yeah. you know, whatnot. It can be used as a pre-medication before surgery because it also, since it's a, you know, a depressant, it augments anesthetics. And some of the side effects of these kinds of drugs include dizziness, loss of coordination, drowsiness, which are all kind of things that would be bad in this situation where you can't see outside and you, yeah. you, know, you can't rely on your balance. So the evidence of this uh, phenazepam medication in the remains of the captain made it possible to conclude that the medicine had been taken at an unknown time prior to flight. Yeah. And from the witness statements, it was not clear whether the commander took the medication regularly or even if there could have been a dependence. But the Bureau highly thinks the medication could have had an impact on the captain's performance. Yeah. So yeah, just another layer to add to this. Yeah. Like this, this medicine could have impaired his, not even not talking about his judgment, but it just could have impaired his equilibrium yeah. to have made these inputs seem a little different than what they really were. Even when you don't have any of these medications in your system, when you're in a plane and you're in a cloud, like you can't quite tell, like you can't trust your inner ear. You can only trust the instruments to tell you what's actually happening and what, you know, what direction you're actually banking and what's going on with the plane. Yeah. So, of course, you know, there's some findings that are uh, in the report here. And I'm going to go through them right now. Uh, the flight crew had been working together for four days prior to the day of the accident. This was their ninth flight together. All attitude changes during climb and in the subsequent accident phase resulted exclusively from the control commands of the flight crew. 
So like the plane, plane didn't do this, yeah. right? Like no, no systems went haywire and caused this. The correct navigation database was installed on the accident flight. That's more to do with the flight management system. The flight director was switched on and working up to impact in indicated airspeed and nav mode. A system for bank warning was not present and not prescribed on the aircraft involved in the accident. So yeah, there was no system telling them that they were banking too much or anything. Yeah, they they didn't happen until the traffic controller announced it, right? Well, the the air traffic controller just told them they were banking in the wrong direction. Okay. Like they should be able to look at their attitude indicator and (laughs) and that should tell them like how much they're banking and if they're banking too much. At 4.55 and 39 seconds UTC, air traffic control changed the departure clearance by instructing a left turn direct to the VOR, the Zurich East VOR. The captain dispensed with use of the autopilot under instrument flight conditions and during the work-intensive climb phase of the flight. So again, he could have used the autopilot here to have like taken over some of the stress, right? And uh, kind of alleviated the work so they could focus on other things. According to the cockpit voice recorder recordings, the first officer made an entry in the flight management system without being instructed to do so by the captain relating to the change of their flight path. So again, the captain didn't tell him to input the new information or, or the new turn. The first officer kind of jumps ahead and starts doing it without being told to do so. So mm-hmm. that kind of can lead to not both of them being in sync and knowing what's going on, which we've talked about. That's that's like classic crew resource management. Like <laughs> saying what you're doing and having the other pilot confirm it, you know, making yeah. sure you're entirely on the same page about what's happening. That way you both know and you have like a check and a balance. Yeah, you've said it, confirmed it, and like someone has... Confirmed that they, that you, yeah. Right. From the analysis of the progress of the flight, it is apparent that the first officer programmed the flight management system without selecting a turn direction. So again, he just put direct. Mm-hmm. According to the cockpit voice recorder recordings, the flight crew set inappropriate priorities for their tasks after the change to the new waypoint. The cockpit voice recorder recordings indicate a one-sided distribution of labor with heavy strain on the first officer and a limitation of his monitoring function. So again, since he was so task-saturated, he couldn't monitor the captain to make sure everything was okay. And the reason he was so task-saturated is because the captain was manually flying the plane Mm -hmm. instead of letting the autopilot take over. So it just kind of overloaded both of them. What was the time period from takeoff to the crash? Because sometimes it's hard to, when we break it down like moment by moment, (laughs) it's hard to think about how fast this happens. So all told from takeoff to crash, it was... Less than three minutes, between two and three minutes, maybe two and a half or so. That's so fast, too. Like, we just talked about it for, what, 30 minutes? And <laughs> yeah, well, 45, almost 40. 45 minutes. <laughs> and and it was two and a half minutes. Yeah, absolutely. It all happened so fast. Like you say, when we're breaking it down and talking about it, it seems like there's so much time to I catch know. things or so much time to be like, why didn't they do this? Like, <laughs> this is all so quick. This is a commercial break on television or like <laughs> less. Well, and that's even counting. I mean, because the issues didn't come up until. After they're already in the like, oh right, yeah, that's right. Good point. So this is really only like less than two minutes, probably. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's like maybe three commercials. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's a commercial break on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it all happened so quickly. In the captain's crew bag, like I said, they found an open pack of Russian medication, finazepam. For several years, the captain flew an aircraft which was operated according to the multi-crew concept of the former Soviet Union. The captain had been employed for about two years on the aircraft type Saab 340B in the operational environment of the former Soviet Union and had accumulated over 1,600 hours of flying experience on this type up to the commencement of his activity with Crossair. So he already had a ton of experience, Mm -hmm. but all in the Soviet Union. Yeah. The flight crew did not consistently apply the principles of crew resource management. Mm. I would love to sit down one day 
and see how many of the incidents we've talked about can be attributed to a breakdown of crew resource management. Seems like almost almost all of them in some way. <laughs> right. Like it comes back at, in some way or another. Because like you said, it's hardly ever just one thing, you know, that that, mm-hmm. that happens. So I, I just imagine like, yeah, like it's got to be like 70% at least. I don't know. I bet. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's such an important concept. And it's crazy to think that. It was only really introducing like modern aviation. Yeah. What was the episode that we really like first talked about? It? I think it was like episode eight that, or something. Was, I don't remember which number it was. It's the one where um, the burned out light bulb. Yeah. I was going to say the light bulb one. Mm-hmm. There were two different incidents we covered in that episode with two different planes that were brought down by uh, burned out light bulbs. Yeah. Which is crazy. And also, I believe if I remember right, the uh, Tenerife incident also was another one that was really monumental where the two 747s collided on the uh, runway. That was another Mm -hmm. incident that really pushed forward the concept of CRM. Yeah, so episode nine is the one that we're uh, talking about, the the light bulb one with the crew resource management one. Mm -hmm. And we also do cover uh, the Tenerife incident much later. I don't remember what episode that is, but that's also in there if you're curious to go back and listen to them. So, of course, you know, like you said, there's multiple causes for this incident, and I'm going to read through the causes that were in the final report here. And of course, the accident is attributable to a collision with the ground after the flight crew had lost control of the aircraft for the following reasons. The flight crew reacted inappropriately to the change in departure clearance by air traffic control. The first officer made an entry into the flight management system without being instructed to do so by the captain, which related to the change to the uh, waypoint standard instrument departure. In doing so, he omitted to select a turn direction. Mm. The captain dispensed with the use of autopilot under instrument flight conditions and during the work-intensive climb phase of the flight. The captain took the aircraft into a spiral dive to the right because, with the probability bordering on certainty, he had lost spatial orientation. Probability bordering on certainty. That's, that's, mm-hmm. a, yeah. that's a way of saying this is definitely what happened. <laughs> well, it's a way of saying we can't 100% yeah. prove this is what happened, but this is almost certainly what happened. <laughs> yeah. The first officer took only inadequate measures to prevent or recover from the spiral dive. The following factors may have contributed to the accident. The captain remained unilaterally firm in perceptions which suggested a left turn direction to him. When interpreting the attitude display instruments under stress, the commander resorted to a reaction pattern which he had learned earlier, which we talked about. He probably reverted to thinking about the attitude indicator from the Soviet Union perspective. The commander's capacity for analysis and critical assessment of the situation were possibly limited as a result of the effects of medication. Again, they can't Mm -hmm. definitively figure out whether medication played a role in this, but it's definitely possible. After the change to standard instrument departure to the new waypoint, the crew set inappropriate priorities for their tasks and their concentration remained one-sided. Again, this is what we talked about. Like the, The captain was focused purely on flying the plane and the first officer was focused purely on everything else. Yeah when they could have synced up a lot more. The commander was not systematically acquainted by Crosshair with the specific features of Western systems and cockpit procedures. Of course, as always with all of these, uh, there's recommendations that came out as a result of this incident. If air traffic control gives clearance for a course direct to a waypoint together with a prescribed turn direction, the direct to entry must be made together with the instructed turn direction. That's This is when they're putting it in the flight management system. This applies even when the changing course is obviously less than 180 degrees, Maintenance of the qualification to use the flight management system should be ensured by the appropriate measures, either simulator or other training equipment. So, like I said here, the important part is even when the changing course is less than 180 degrees, because then, like, you start to assume, well, it's closer to a left turn. Like, don't make that assumption. You have to put it in to make sure that it, it goes in there correctly. 
Yeah. On the Saab 340B, the autopilot should be switched on before any in-flight programming operation on the flight management system. Use of the autopilot should be recommended for all flight phases, in particular use of the autopilot on departure under instrument meteorological conditions and during phases with a high workload or in an airspace with dense traffic should be prescribed. So they're just saying you really should say the autopilot should be recommended at all times because up until this point, there really was no recommendation for that. In order to ensure that the departure procedures in Zurich are compatible with the operating procedures for individual aircraft types, such as the Saab 340B, uh, and at the same time, in order to guarantee safe and efficient operation under all conditions, the current departure procedures should be examined. So just re-examine the different departures that they have just to be safe and make sure that it's doable for all planes mm-hmm. and for all types. An operator should, in principle, be able to assume that a pilot with a validated license can operate an aircraft in accordance with local standards. Nonetheless, particularly in the case of these candidates, the individual background must be carefully clarified and taken into consideration on recruitment and employment. So that's just kind of like they have a valid license. In this case, you know, a pilot who formerly flew in the Soviet Union has a valid license. Obviously, they need to think about that individual background and their CRM knowledge, culture, language, mm-hmm. you know, flying in metric system, all kinds of different things. You, know, you really need to think about the history of every pilot and take that into account. And of course, there's some actions here that were taken by the time the report was written. Paragraphs in the operations manual that relate to programming the navigation management system have been amended and expressed the use of autopilot and division of tasks and monitoring in the cockpit. Makes total sense. You know, that that would have absolutely saved this flight. Yeah, Yeah. The basic training of pilots from the former Soviet Union has been subjected to analysis. The selection criteria for direct entry captains have been redefined and refined. Direct entry captains must now complete three months flying service in the right-hand seat in order to become better acquainted with the operating environment. So even if a captain had tons of experience in the former Soviet Union... And was qualified to fly, you know, in Western Airlines. They still make them go through three months of training and flying as a first officer just to become better acquainted and to make sure that they understand everything in the new systems. Yeah, it's a good pilot, but still got to... Yeah, things are different. You make sure that, you know, you, you become accustomed to them. The bank angle warning of the ground proximity warning system has been activated in all fleets. So a warning that would have told them <laughs> that they were going through some pretty severe bank angles. And the period after conversation training during which the pilot is considered to be inexperienced has been increased from 25 to 100 flying hours. The limit is integrated into crew planning systems. So just that's just like an internal designation for them to know when pilots are no longer considered inexperienced. Just give them more flying hours so they can get even more experience. Yeah. But that's it for Crosshair 498. It's just... Again, I mean, this is just another classic example of it's not any one thing that went wrong. Yeah, it's just so many little things all lined up in the exact wrong way. It, 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 there were so many opportunities where this could have been savable, mm-hmm. and that this wouldn't have been an issue. Even it's something as simple as just turning the autopilot on and letting yeah. it fly the plane through the poor visibility, through the poor conditions. Yeah, and it did seem like whenever we first started talking about, it, I was like, oh well, it's just. It seemed at first like it was just the captain like piloting wrong, but yeah, when you break it down, there's a lot of little things like that. Yeah, yeah, like even if he had you know initiated the bank angle in the wrong direction, there were there were so many things that should have been able to catch that, or even yeah. the like I said, he shouldn't have even been well. He there was, he didn't even have to be flying at this point. Like he could have let the autopilot take over and then focus on other things. Yeah. To, and again, crew resource management, synchronizing, making sure. Both pilots are on the same page. 
uh, it's just, it's frustrating to see. But yeah, that's it. Crosshair flight, 498, totally preventable. Yeah. But that's it for this episode. Don't forget to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. You know what? I'll, I'll see if I can, I don't know if I have it, but I'll see if I can find a map of the Zurich departure procedures. Uh-huh. So you can see the waypoints in the different directions. I'm going to make a note right now. I'll see if I can find it. Well, the problem is that they change over time. I don't know if like, I can look up a current one. I don't know if I'll be able to find one from January 2000. I'll see if I can find one from back then. That way you can see the different directions they turned and what was happening in relation to the airport. Yeah, yeah. But that's all on our, on our social media. We post tons of stuff that maybe, you know, you, that we talk about and maybe you have trouble visualizing it. You, you can go check out our social media and we'll, uh, we'll post things like that. Yeah, and there's just like other stuff like discussions with other people and it's, it's a good way to meet other people interested in these types of things. Not just, yeah. you know, like other people who listen to podcasts, other people who listen, interested in, you know, airplanes and aviation. And yeah, yeah Though I will absolutely. say this. I will say this. If you message on Facebook, it's not as good to suggest incidents first to cover on Facebook because I uh, do a lot of the Facebook management and I try to purposely avoid reading about, <laughs> about flights and incidents in advance because then it might spoil other episodes. <laughs> so don't suggest episodes on Facebook. Good to know. Yeah, for people, if you if you message on Facebook saying, "Hey, you should you should cover this incident," don't do that one because Gus doesn't read that one. <laughs> I, I manage that one. I I don't have a Facebook account, so yeah, I can't. But uh, I do I do my best to try to respond to as many uh, Twitter and Instagram messages as possible. There can be quite a few, so I mean, I can't respond to all of them, but I I, I try to do I do my best. I respond to a lot of yeah. them. Yeah, we try. And you, if you look at our social media, you can see our link tree. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye.